the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon to you as things heat up in the Murray-Darling Basin plan debate, especially in Canberra where legislation's due to enter Parliament uh, to extend that plan. An advertising campaign and a campaign in general has been launched to try and educate consumers on where food comes from. It has a pretty well-known voice. Australian food producers grow premium foods that are the envy of the world. Fresh foods you eat have a story. That story... That's Charles Woolley voicing that campaign. You'll hear more about it on the program today. Also, well, there's some questions about the peak uh, research and development body for horticulture. Hort Innovation collects a lot in fees from horticulture growers each year for research and development. But are they being transparent enough? We will go through some of those details today on the program too. Right now, though, let's get rural news with Emma Field. Emma. G'day Warwick. An Australian farm has taken home the title of world's best steak at the 2023 World Steak Challenge after two days of judging in the Netherlands. The New South Wales willow tree based farm Jack's Creek also won Best Sirloin and Oceania's Best Steak Award. It's the third time they've won the title and Managing Director Patrick Warmall says it's been nearly a decade since they were champions. The first year of the event 2015 we we won world's best steak producer and then we did it again in 2016 yeah but we got pipped at the post in 2017 as we went for a hat trick so yeah thrilled to be able to take home the gong yeah, nine years since the event started those three awards were all won with a uh, a wagyu cross sirloin it was specifically a f2 to f3 Wagyu cross, so that's anywhere from 75% to 88% Wagyu. New South Wales irrigators are calling on the state government to provide subsidies to help ease the cost of installing water metres on farm. The state has been heavily criticised for the lack of metering across several large river systems. The non-urban water metering rules are under review to examine barriers to compliance and seek solution five years after the framework was introduced. New South Wales Water Minister Rose Jackson says she's determined to take action. One of the first things that I did when I became the Minister for Water was receive a briefing from NRA, the independent regulator, about where they were up to with um, compliance on non-urban water metering. We have a number of the cohorts that are meant to be compliant with very, very low compliance rates. It was explained to me that on the current trajectory, we would not reach no meter, no pump principles until 2040. It was completely unacceptable. Yes, we need some positive incentives, some some carrots, making it easier for people, but also some sticks too. I think there are some water users, certainly not all, but some who don't really feel as though this is a priority for government. And so for people who are refusing to comply, I think that there should be some stronger penalties. And dairy farmer David Williams at Vasey in the Hunty Valley region says water meter installation is expensive. $40,000, dollars to put in a meter. And you don't mind spending the money, but putting it on a river bank, there's a hostile environment that gets flooded. The last few years, probably been flooded three or four times. Very expensive um, equipment to have sitting on the river bank. 
if the government is absolutely desperate to have metres, I think they need, probably need to subsidise them. And we've been covering a lot of the fires that have ravaged the top end this year. But for one Southern NT producer, he's also had to deal with fire tornadoes while protecting his property over the last few weeks. Ross Staines says he's lost up to 30% of land in blazes, both at Lindenvale and and Mount Ebenezer stations. He managed to save his homestead, but the fire tornadoes he spotted were quite frightening. Yeah, I went out to uh, check the fire front um, last week. Yeah, I was I was watching and I, I, I couldn't quite work out what I was looking at for a moment. And then, it, yeah, as it got closer and closer to me, it was moving at a rate and it looked as if it was some sort of a, a tornado, really. Um, it would have been a few hundred metres wide and it had flames, <laughs> not sure how high, maybe 40 or 50 metres in the air. And yeah, it was moving, moving extremely quick. So it was coming straight for me. I managed to get out of the way and then parked up on a, a sand hill and watched it go across. And it, it went across the night paddock in a, in a matter of seconds and, yeah, lit up, lit up a, a trail of fire behind it so um yeah i think the the fire and the heat just creates these little whirly winds that spread the fire everywhere but when i went back and had a look at it it twisted off full-grown mulga trees and um left them broken on the ground before the the fire had even got there and finally, we all love seafood and fish at Christmas, but new commercial fishing regulations in Queensland means there's likely to be less on offer this year. From July this year, the state government lowered total allowable commercial catch to about 28% of the previous quota. Mackay fish market owner David Caracciallo says fish lovers across Australia will be affected. So the fish like our barramundi, uh, which goes... You know, we fly it down to restaurants in Melbourne, um, to the wholesalers that deal with the top-end restaurants. They prefer it air-freighted, so it's out of the water and on the plate within a couple of days. Our mackerel, it's, it's a, a big uh, seller in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. This is going to be devastating for the people of the, the southern states and, and Queensland. So we might have to stick to ham this Christmas was. And that wraps up Rural News. Oh, best steak in the world, bit of seafood, a regular reef and beef from you uh, there, Emma Field. Thank you very much, Emma Field, with Rural News. Not leading with the story that Australia has once again won world, world's best steak. Would have been a huge mistake, wouldn't it? Yeah, hopefully you're giggling like I do. A rare joke from me, or was it? Medium rare. I don't know. I better keep moving. It's 11 past 12 here on the country. Our debate continues in federal parliament today about the Albanese government's attempts to rewrite the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which sets out how the water in Australia's largest rivers are shared. It includes a controversial proposal to buy back hundreds of gigalitres of water from farmers right across the basin. But as Kath Sullivan reports, river users say the water's value can't always be measured in environmental or economic terms. Wednesday night at the Barham Lawn tennis courts and the sausages are sizzling as kids run between the courts and their parents sneak a midweek beer between sets. The grain harvest is underway in this community in western New South Wales, which means numbers are down. There's a few young kids getting roped in to fill spots on the the tennis teams tonight. (laughs) Between games, Kate O'Neill explains she moved home to the river town with her young family a few years ago and hasn't looked back. The pull of the river, yes, I think that's a big factor in us moving back here. Like, we didn't want to move back to any 
country town. We needed, we wanted to have a natural feature. So because we grew up here on the river, it just seemed a logical choice. And our whole social calendar revolves around the river. You know, if you're going to do something socially, you're down on the river, either in a boat, you're fishing, hanging out in the banks, just enjoying the views. A couple of hours drive upstream and the river provides a quieter way of life for First Nations man Fred Baxter. Tell us about life living here on the river. Magic. Despite having a house on shore at Robinvale, he prefers to live in the houseboat on the river. I've got a house just over there, probably what, 200 metres away. I'd rather live on here than up there. As you know, you're sitting here, it's peaceful, quiet, the river's right there. Got nothing to worry about down here. Up there, you've got to worry about everything. From a way of life to a livelihood, irrigation has allowed farmers to grow their business and the basin produces more than $22 billion of food and fibre every year from more than 7,000 irrigation businesses. But this year, not all irrigators are making money. Our farmers are starting to begin to feel numb because it's so stressful. It's the worst time farmers are experiencing. In South Australia's Riverland, wine grape growers like Simi Gill are struggling. China's ban on our wine means prices are so low, some growers are pulling vines out. It was very sad, and it's very sad to see that, look how beautiful these grapes are, the greenery in the Riverland, and when you look around, you look at it, how beautiful they are, but yet there's no value. The federal government has proposed using water typically used to grow food and fibre to instead boost the environment. If the legislation before the parliament is passed, it could allow hundreds of gigalitres to be diverted from farming to environmental flows, a prospect that Simi Gill says she may be forced to consider if the price for wine grapes doesn't pick up soon. If there is a very good buyback scheme and good value, you know, we could use it on our loans, we could use it to reduce our bills. It could definitely work for people who have the water to sell, but then again, are we going to have enough water to irrigate our farms is another big question mark. That is Simi Gill ending Kath Sullivan's report. Simi, a South Australian wine grape grower. Uh, speaking there, you're listening to The Country Hour. With that in mind and with the progression of the bill looking at the Murray-Darling Basin Plan's extension currently before Parliament. An interesting, actually, bit of reporting too from our ABC team in Canberra. The ABC understands from the Greens party room meetings this year, Greens votes key to passing this legislation in the Senate to extend the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which is supported by all states apart from Victoria, to extend the plan by two years, uh, giving money to states for more works, but also... Uh, allowing more water buybacks from the federal government. Uh, The Greens party room, the ABC understands, no agreement has been reached between the Greens and the government on passing that legislation, meaning the government doesn't currently have the numbers it needs in the Senate, but those negotiations are ongoing. That's all I can tell you about where that is up to in Parliament. But as we know more and when it comes to a vote, we'll obviously tell you more as well. And with that debate, Continuing a new campaign's been launched in the Victorian part of the Murray-Darling Basin today, aimed at educating the community on where their food comes from. Victoria is just 12% of the Murray-Darling Basin, but produces over 30% of the food. And 
of that 12%. It's nearly half of Victoria, 44%, is actually in the Murray-Darling Basin. The campaign has gathered statistics like that on where different types of food is grown, also by council-by-council basis, to show how much food irrigation water grows. TV ad voiced by veteran TV reporter Charles Woolley has followed, and the organisers hope it will inform the water debate. In many countries, the cost of food has almost tripled. Australian food producers grow... A famous name in Australian journalism, lots of statistics on food and where it's grown in northern Victoria, and a big blue button. Don't worry, get to that in a moment. They're all featuring in the latest campaign in the Murray-Darling Basin around water use. It's the message of food needs water. To protect the water that grows your food. The Food Needs Water campaign is the brainchild of Natalie Akers, a dairy farmer from Tallygroupna, north of Shepparton. We've developed a website uh, that celebrates all the food that's grown in northern Victoria and we want to show the community and show the nation and even show the world just the sheer volume of food that is coming out of northern Victoria. Why did you want to do this? I think it's a fantastic story and uh, it's one worth celebrating and we have the federal government uh, at the moment looking to buy back water. They're looking at buying back 750 gigalitres. That's equivalent to one and a half Sydney harbours of water when we've already given up four Sydney harbours worth of water. So there's huge ramifications and we need to understand or get the community to understand that taking that water away will impact food production. Food needs water. And when we're talking food needs water, you're saying you want to, to sort of tell the story of the food that's produced here. What is the story of the food that is produced in Northern Victoria? Look, it's an amazing story, Warwick. Um, and, you know, when you scroll through the ABS or the Australian Bureau of Statistics stats, they tell a, a really rich story for our region. So despite Northern Victoria only making up 12% of the basin, we're actually producing close to 30% of all agricultural output in the basin. Some of our amazing stats are out of Northern Vic, we produce 80% of Australia's pears, 80% of Australia's peaches, 75% of Australia's nectarines, 70% of the grapes, 70% of the olives, 59% almonds, 40% of Australia's cherries, 35% of Australia's apples, 20% of Australia's dairy products, and between 10 and 12% of Australia's wine, crops, eggs and livestock. That's an amazing story and I want us to celebrate it. Natalie Akers got the data on Northern Victoria food production by poring over data collected by the Australian Statistics Agency, the ABS. She then got funding from major dairy food processors, Bega, Fonterra, Saputo and Kai Valley, who all have factories in the region, to run television ads and launch the website. Our dairy products are under threat. People here reckon that the government plans to take away what will soon amount to 25% of the water used to produce your food. Ultimately, to all that food that we produce, water is the critical ingredient. We can't grow that food without water. And so when we have a federal government looming over our shoulder wanting to take that, we have devised a website uh, that has a, a novel device, which is a blue button. 
and uh, and we want everyone in the community to hit the blue button to ensure that there is enough water to grow the food. And attached to the blue button is a counter. And so we want as many clicks on our blue button so that the government can see that we value the food that's growing our water. It's an educational tool, but it's also a campaign, right? Absolutely. Will you be using that counter to try and push the government to, to lessen their want for water buybacks? Very challenging when we have legislation going through the parliament right now, but we would hope that it would help to inform the debate. When you say inform the debate, what do you want the wider public or the politicians who are going to read it to understand? Food needs water. Water is at risk if if the volumes um, are bought back that the government is proposing. Um, we've seen the costs of grocery prices triple in some countries around the world. And without that water, we believe we are at risk of that occurring here in Australia. A lot of people and a lot of arguments are made that Australia exports so much agricultural produce, so it doesn't matter as much if you lose access to, if we have a fall in food production because we're already exporting our excess and uh, and there'll be enough food for us. How does that sit with you? It doesn't sit well at all, Warwick. Um, ultimately, we have farmers producing food and, uh, you know, Yes, where we're feeding our nation and yes, we're feeding the world and that is a good place to be. We want to be able to continue to do that. We want to be able to support those international countries as well. That's Charles Woolley uh, just finishing off Natalie Aker's thoughts there, uh, who is a dairy farmer in northern Victoria who created the Food Needs Water campaign for northern Victoria as part of the Murray-Darling Basin, and uh, that has been launched in Shepparton today. It's 22 past 12 on the country out right now. Uh, you can send us a text, 0467 842 722. You can give us a call, 1300 And I'm actually interested in your thoughts on this. Whether anyone wants to call and talk about this or not, this is up to you. This is my gauging of how important this is for you, right? The Victorian Farmers Federation today, uh, which has been embroiled in legal battles about its future and its leadership, has pushed, continued to push on with its efforts to reform uh, the organisation and reform how memberships can be made. It's released a new way to be memberships, new prices to be members of the VFF today, uh, starting at a platinum price of nearly $1,500 per year, which includes things like premium seatings at conferences, etc. Gold, $900 per year, uh, which includes industrial relations advice, and nearly $700 a year you can be a VFF member. That's like the standard membership is what they're calling it, the silver membership, which is including full voting rights. And if you want to be an associate or have a non-voting rights membership, bronze is $395 per year, so about $400 per year. That pricing is different compared to the commodity-based pricing of the history of the VFF. So some of your milk check was taken to the VFF to pay the VFF if you're a dairy farmer, some of your grain, if you're a grain farmer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think a standard pricing is going to help that organisation? Is it going to get enough money for that organisation to continue? Uh, in court, it's been mentioned the VFF has between 6,036 and 6,044 registered members. So if they're all paying the gold price, for example, I think that's around $3.6 million for the organisation to 
run every year. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Is that important to you? Have you looked over those numbers? Do you think it means anything for the future of the Victorian Farmers Federation? Lobby price, lobby group membership prices, not our core discussion usually on the country hour. So I wonder if it's important to you. If you want to talk about this, you can call us 1300 977 or send a text 0467 842 the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. In the meantime, we'll talk childcare on the Country Hour where agricultural groups have been urging governments to act on uh, the, the childcare shortage to help plug agricultural labour gaps. Farming parents say they're paying tens of thousands of dollars per year in out-of-pocket expenses for nannies while metropolitan parents who have access to daycare centres receive a federal subsidy. Fiona Broom spoke with Australian Minister for Early Childhood Education and Care, Anne Ali, and asked if childcare is in crisis in regional Australia. We're looking at uh, the early childhood education and sector and care sector right across the nation, including looking at accessibility for uh, early childhood education and care in rural and remote Australia, recognising that uh, according to the uh, interim report of the ACCC, the market is not being attracted into those areas. And so the number of the reviews that we've got, the ACCC review, the Productivity Commission review, are all about looking at how can we reform the system to ensure that uh, parents in rural, regional and remote have access to early childhood education and care. How are early childhood education and care services regulated in Australia? You can get care through different levels of government, for example, local government or state government. Well, it's quite a, well let's talk about the market first because it's quite a mixed market. So you have large private providers, smaller private providers, large not-for-profits, small not-for-profits, community-run, council-run. Council then you have centre-based, you have in-home care and you have family daycare. The way they are all regulated is through the Australian Children's Education and Care Quality Framework. At the state level, state regulators will look at things like the physical requirements for centres. The um, agricultural industry industry group grain growers uh, say that childcare shortages are making agricultural labour workforce shortages worse um, and they've brought the food industry and the early learning industries together at round tables to try to find some solutions to these shortages. Have you been involved with these talks? Oh absolutely, I've met with the grain growers, had, had some lengthy conversations with them and um, have made that commitment to listen to their grievances and I completely understand what those what their issues are and have assured them that the work that we're doing in the reviews uh, and the work that we're doing in terms of the things that we've introduced around the workforce packages, uh, the things that we're uh, looking at. We have, a, for example, um, a community childcare fund, which is $575 million. That supports 900 services and 60% of those services are in regional areas. We've just announced $16 million in the latest round for 47 services. Three of them are in Victoria. And next year we have a larger round being released. And this is to fund uh, the establishment and ongoing delivery of services in rural and regional areas or in areas where they're experiencing a lack of supply. 
So communities uh, have also been calling for more flexibility regarding who can care for children. So going back to that question of um, skills for workers, um, they're, they're also talking about flexibility about where children can be cared for. So, for example, allowing um, family in-home daycare providers to operate for example, at a community centre or in a farm building, is this something that you would consider uh, changing regulations in regards to? I think what we're talking about here is the flexibility of service delivery, flexibility that meets the needs of parents, whether it's in-home care, whether it's mobile care, whether it's in uh, uh, and, and in locations that meet the needs of parents and um, meet the kind of the convenience needs of parents. In terms of uh, quality, the, the best thing that we can do about quality is ensure that we have a workforce. And what we're doing there is we've got the fee-free TAFE and I'm pleased to say that early childhood education and care has been one of the biggest uptakes in fee-free TAFE. So we have a pipeline of qualified people coming through. And just in regards to the childcare subsidy, uh, many mm. families in regional areas tell us that they're in the option for childcare is a private nanny. They don't have access to centres or other forms of care. Mm. Why does the federal childcare subsidy not cover costs for nanny or nannies or au pairs um, for people who can't access centres in regional areas? The ACCC and the Productivity Commission reviews are canvassing everything across the whole sector and looking at reform across the whole sector with the, the objective being to have an affordable and accessible and quality early childhood education and care sector that works for every child and every parent. So would you consider changing the subsidy to include uh, support for people who, whose only option is um, private care? I think that would be something that the Productivity Commission and the ACCC will look at when they look at um, provision and accessibility of care in rural, regional and remote areas. That is the Federal Minister, Anne R. Lee, who is Federal Minister for Early Childhood Education and Care, speaking there with Fiona Broom. If you want to read more, head online, abc.net.au slash rural. Just before we head to the news, oh, Alan might have dropped off. I was just about to head to, to a caller because some of you do want to have your say on VFF membership prices and you're more than welcome to call. Alan, call back if you'd like, 1300 977 Triple two is the number if you'd like to call thirteen hundred nine double seven triple two. In the meantime, we'll get regional news headlines, shall we? Emil Pavlich has them for us again today. Good afternoon, Emil. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making regional news headlines. Three individuals accused of murdering a Wangaratta teenager whose body was found on Christmas Eve last year have pleaded not guilty to their murder charge. Shepparton locals Danny Clark, 39, Kylie Scott, 38 and Marupna's Dimitri Delio, 25 are facing the murder charge for allegedly killing 19-year-old Charlie Gander in Bunbatha. They were charged after emergency services were called to a car fire on Lock Gary Road on the morning of December 24 where a body later identified as Mr Gander was found. The trio appeared before the Shepparton Magistrates Court today where they entered their not guilty pleas. A volunteer rural fire brigade on the border of Victoria and New South Wales is reeling after being ransacked overnight the second time in the space of two years. The rural fire service shed in Goonmalool near Swan Hill 
had a generator, fuel from a tank and tools stolen at some point after midnight last night. New South Wales police say they're investigating and forensics are being analysed on the scene. Captain of the brigade Grant MacDonald says the theft, which is the second in less than two years, has impacted morale within the volunteer-based team. The Mining and Energy Union says enshrining the State Electricity Commission in Victoria's constitution won't guarantee a pipeline of jobs for power station workers. The state government has introduced a bill proposing to amend the constitution to ensure the SEC, which was privatised in the 1990s, couldn't be sold again. The government says the SEC will create 59,000 jobs, including 6,000 traineeships and apprentices. But the Mining and Energy Union says it's unclear what these jobs would look like. And the historic Cape Otway Lighthouse remains closed to the public due to a toxic mercury spill three weeks after the area was rocked by an earthquake. A magnitude 5 earthquake rattled the Cape Otway region on October the 22nd, spilling the mercury, which was used in part of the lantern within the lighthouse. That's the latest in regional news headlines. Back to you, Warwick. Thanks very much for that. Emil, Emil Pavlich there with regional news headlines. I read out the Victorian Farmers Federation membership prices just before, and I said, look, is this important to you? Is it something that matters to you? A couple of texts coming in. Georgie says, re-VFF memberships, the new pricing makes membership and representation more affordable for us young farmers slash future farmers. I think it's a step in the right direction. Another one here says uh, VFF need to include all farmers to get a critical mass, so maybe 50 bucks. And when they're doing their job, the VFF's doing their job, that is, all farmers will pay accordingly. Uh, Ron says, uh, I'd, uh, other levies on top of that pricing? I just want to know that if I buy a gold-plated membership, will they listen to me? They wouldn't 14 years ago. I want to see a culture change first, says Ron, an ex-member. Uh, Alan's in Hopeton. Hi, Alan. How are you, Warwick? I'm good. What What do you think? The VFF revamped membership prices. What do you make well, of this I'm, change? I'm pretty disappointed with the way the VFF's been operated. I've been a member since 1969 when it was VFU was formed and been active in all that time. And I think we're going through the worst stage that we've seen. The current uh, management obviously doesn't consider the members. We've lost a heap of dairy farmers. The grain growers are not happy. And look at the and I'm a I'm a member of the grain grain group as well and pay levies to them. But I don't know, this is, uh, it seems to be a, a sort of an emergency measure. OK, you can pay what you can afford. I see somebody just text in to say, you pay what you get for, well, what you're going to get for your money. Well, I think they'll need to improve their management a lot more. I'm not against paying a reasonable sum for, for your member because I think that's important. The organisation is so critical. It has to be there, and farmers have to realise the importance of it. Uh, but so, so, Alan, just in terms of the the, the stage we're at, because you mentioned all those fights, the dairy farmers leaving, the grain growers taking uh, the organisation to court, all of that is going in the background whilst this sort of membership review and these new prices have been released. As you, as a paying member, is that hard to, to keep across all of that? Yeah, it is. And I think I wonder, I think they put the cart before the horse. I should, should have uh, had a, a special conference or something to get get the members there and talk about it rather than just have the management make the decisions all the time. I think that we've uh, got to the stage where unless you're going to include the members in their decision-making, you're not going to get uh, the uh, the broad opinion of the, the... And we need the younger members. They're the ones we need. I mean, I'm in my 80s. I'm still a member, but I, and I still value the VFF. But 
you've got to get these young blokes in there, the ones that are future, the organisation, and you've got to convince them that it's worth going. I'm, I'm dead sure there has to be there. I would never be without the, the farming organisation, but the uh, way they've gone in recent times, they've done nothing to improve the, the image or to attract younger members or farmers to see the benefit. Uh, Alan, just before we go, we've got about to cross to the Weather Bureau. How's it looking at Hopeton today? Oh, it's a nice day. I think the harvest, we had a bit of a shower yesterday that held things up for a few hours. And now it's all, all signals go today, Warwick, and things are looking good. We're starting off with a pretty good season here. And, uh, yeah, good day, and the weather looks good the next few days. Brilliant. Thanks for your call, Alan. There, 1300 if you want to call like Alan has done on VFF memberships or anything else we're talking about today, 1300 Stephanie Miles is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Warwick. How are you going? That's our weather report from Hopeton, but we better talk about the rest of the state. How's it looking? (laughs) Yeah, no worries. Uh, Look, overnight we had a bit of a cold front move through the southern parts of the state, so we've got some lingering showers, mostly on and south of the ranges, and some cloudy conditions too. Those showers that came through overnight really only brought around two to five millimetres. To the southern areas, the highest we got was eight millimetres in Springvale, so the eastern suburbs of uh, Melbourne, but... Yeah, look, it's quite a contrast, to be honest, in the northern parts of the state. We've got nearly not a cloud in the sky and some really warm temperatures too. So if you have a look at those temperatures, those places in the south, places like Hamilton, Warrnambool, Ballarat, all getting around 16, 17, 18 degrees, and same with Sale and Bansdale, around 19, 20. But then up in the north, Mildura, 28, Swan Hill, 27. So, look, I think I'd rather be in the northern parts of the state today worried with those warmer temperatures and the clear skies. And then, I suppose, beyond that, how are we looking? Yeah, sure. So tomorrow and Saturday, they'll be very similar to what we've got today, except a little bit drier. Those clouds will stick around on the south of the ranges and we will have some clear conditions continuing to the north. Temperatures are really quite similar as well, at a couple of degrees here and there, up to about 30 degrees in Mildura on Saturday. So... Not much changing there. It's really from Sunday onwards where we get quite a drastic change, where we have a inland trough over eastern Australia. It's going to start to move southeastwards and extend over the eastern parts of the state. Uh, and with that, we're going to get some more showers developing over the eastern and northeastern districts. Uh, perhaps a couple of isolated thunderstorms on the Sunday afternoon too. But then from Monday and Tuesday onwards, those showers are going to be increasing further. They'll be over the eastern parts of the state again, with thunderstorms continuing. So that's Monday and Tuesday. And then <clears throat> excuse me, by Wednesday, we'll have uh, some more calmer conditions, hopefully. A little bit unsure about how long those showers will stick around, but it's really going to be similar for the next three days. And then from Sunday onwards, we've got some activity coming. And in, as far as rainfall-wise, is there much on that that sort of when you say further activity coming, is, is that going to, to bring a bit of rainfall for for the state with it? I think it will, Warwick. It's going to be mostly in those eastern parts. The places on and south of the ranges, anywhere between two to three millimetres, but places like the northeastern district, um, west-south Gippsland districts, probably around the five to ten millimetres, but if they're lucky in one of those um, or a couple of the isolated thunderstorms that we're thinking through there, anywhere up to about 10 to 20 millimetres. So some higher totals with the thunderstorms, but definitely the shower activity around those 5 to 10 millimetres in the eastern parts. So that'll be enough to sort of break up harvest for, for people. Um, there is a question here saying, 
Next week's looking wet. We've started harvest. Could you ask the Bureau about the northern country up on the river for expectations of rain next week? How's it looking along those border regions? Yeah, those border regions uh, on Sunday will be less likely to get a shower, only probably one to two millimetres. On Monday, they could get up to around the two to five millimetres, and then on Tuesday, it's coming back down again. But those thunderstorms, I think, will be more likely in the northeastern districts rather than the northern country. They can't rule them out. However, yeah, they will see less than what we get in those very eastern districts. Anything else we need to know, Stephanie? Not else. Uh, sorry, not much else, except that we do have a strong wind warning in the eastern Gippsland coastal waters. Uh, and then also with those temperatures and the winds increasing from Sunday in the western parts of the state, keep an eye on your fire dangers. But other than that, nothing. Thanks so much, Warwick. Thank you very much. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. Uh, I love this text, 0467 Saying that previous caller who said the young blokes need to get involved in the VFF, mate, us girls have a good go too. Sorry, I didn't pick that up, but thank you for picking it up on my behalf and sending in the text as well. Uh, on VFF memberships, as Stephen says, re-VFF, the levy-based system is the only way forward where everyone contributes, like South Australia. We already have the comp funds and a percentage of that could go to adv- advocacy with an opt-out says Stephen, and Craig says, I won't be paying a membership as a dairy farmer until we have some dedicated dairy staff. Uh, No dedicated dairy staff at the VFF. Absolute joke, says Craig in Stanhope. Uh, This one says, how much do you pay in union membership was so we can see if VFF is expensive or not? Cheers, I'm not a union member. Sorry, anonymous texter. If you're going to have a crack like that, at least put your name on it, mate. Uh, The next one says, the VFF membership should be one price. No tiered membership. Needs to be equal access for all members. No pricing discrimination. This one from Ben. Thank you, Ben, for putting your name on your text. 0467 842 722. Graincorp has released their results. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this caught my ear today from... Uh, Emil Pavlich's news report and he's sent us some more information which I want to bring to you now because it sounds awful. The Rural Fire Service, which is the the fire volunteer rural fire brigades in regional New South Wales, their shed at the corner of a road at Maloul near Swan Hill was raided after midnight last night by thieves. New South Wales police say an investigation's going on with forensics being on scene and analysing the scene as we speak. Captain of the Brigade, Grant McDonald, says the theft was pretty extensive. They have taken a station generator, uh, an angle fridge, the battery inverter and power system that ran the shed, uh, the first aid kit off the truck and a spare in the shed. Uh, they've taken all of the portable radios, including some very high-end RFS-issued radios from the truck. Uh, they have taken fuel from a container we kept there to keep the truck topped off, and it looks very much like they have siphoned all of the fuel out of the truck itself. The keys from the truck were missing, but we were able to locate them. Um, an extensive amount of tooling has gone missing. One of the equipment lockers has had the door partially prized off, which is actually fairly funny because that it wasn't locked in the first place. And I have no doubt there's a lot more than that missing that I haven't actually managed to find yet. Really horrible to hear, especially something like a generator I don't imagine is cheap. What do you think is this going to sort of, what's it all worth, um, you know, and, and how might um, insurance like help you out? 
Well, at first pass, I'm guessing we're probably about $10,000 down. Uh, as for insurance, I will have to get onto our head office in Denaliquin to find out more information on that. Obviously, coming into harvests and, and just dry conditions, bushfire season and stuff, what sort of impact could this have, I guess, on your actual abilities to do what you need to do? Well, this is going to have a major impact on our ability as a brigade. As you say, we're just coming into harvest. It's pretty much in full swing in this area at the minute completely dry conditions already. The fuel load is very high in the district and its curing is nearly 100% across the board. So we have a high fire danger threat in the area. The next nearest brigade is probably 50 kilometres up the road. So while we will hopefully be able to get the truck out the door in the next 24 hours, we are going to be very light on for some of the equipment we need to operate. I believe this isn't the first time that this shed has been raided, unfortunately, in Goonmalool. Did you have some issues during construction? What, what, what happened there? Unfortunately, yes. When the station was built approximately two years ago, on the, the day that the station hit lockup, uh, thieves targeted it and, quite frankly, stole the tin off the shed itself. It's terrible. What, what, what's it like, I guess, for the morale of the brigade to sort of have that happen a couple of years ago and now... Again, obviously waking up this morning and getting the really terrible news. won't do morale any good. We are a very uh, rural and remote brigade. We don't have a village or anything like that attached. So the opportunity for us to fundraise to buy this equipment, uh, the stuff that isn't supplied by the Rural Fire Service, uh, is very difficult. We rely extensively on grants. It's a lot of time and effort to get the money to get this equipment and... Uh, to have it all stolen like that is a real kick in the guts. That's Goon Mool Fire Brigade Captain Grant McDonald speaking with uh, Emil Pavlich there after their station was uh, broken into last night. It sounds awful, really, doesn't it? Uh, 0467-842-722 if you want to send a text. Let's go to other major news today. East Coast bulk grain handler Grain Corp today announced a full-year profit of $250 million after a large harvest last season. It's the third consecutive large profit reported by the grain giant after a record $380 million result last year. It's also revealed it's going to ramp up its oil seed crushing up to 1 million tonnes a year, and it's got its eyes on WA for that expansion. Grain Corp Chief Executive Robert, Spur- Robert Spurway said the company was investing that money back into its network. Look, I'm not going to be drawn on individual sites other than to say we've invested quite a few tens of millions of dollars in our sites over the last couple of years. Uh, That is to respond to the very high production we've seen across the east coast of Australia in the last two years. It includes additional storage, which improves turnaround time for trucks, uh, but it also includes additional uh, equipment. And, of course, the training of our people and ensuring that they're able to respond to growers' needs. Um, And uh, overall, if you look at the last five years, there's about $500 million that we've invested into the network. And one of the challenges is ensuring that that investment is in the right locations uh, to meet what we know it can be quite uh, variable production across the East Coast. So it's good to see that our net promoter scores increased uh, through this harvest. Uh, and there's ongoing improvements in truck turnaround times, uh, and that's something that we're committed to doing and continuing to providing the best possible service for growers, uh, as well as the best uh, possible and competitive prices for them. 
I know in the presentation today, um, you mentioned there was about a 7.5% improvement in truck turnaround times, um, which is obviously good, but some growers are reporting that in the peak season, they're waiting for a couple of hours. So that might seem like a bit of a drop in the bucket. Um, do you have a target for what you'd like to bring those turnaround times down to? And, and how are you going with that? Uh, look, most modern sites where things are, are running well, uh, there's a, an amount of time required, of course, to tip the grain and to test the grain and go through the weighbridge. Uh, but anything uh, in the 30 to, to 40 and even up to 60 minutes is considered uh, pretty good by most growers. Uh, our commitment, rather than setting a target, is to make sure it's the best possible service and experience for them uh, overall. We absolutely appreciate that harvest is a really busy time and the efficiency of not just our network but the whole supply chain uh, is, of course, critically important to uh, to growers and to Grain Corp combined. Moving on to oil seeds, you're planning to invest heavily in Grain Corp's oil seed crush capacity to feed the renewable fuels market. Um, GrainCorp already has an oilseed crush facility at Newmerca in Victoria, but you've announced Western Australia is your preferred state for the new plant. Uh, that's not a place that GrainCorp has a big footprint at this stage. What's behind that decision? We have strong relationships with a number of growers in Western Australia as part of our export program to our international customers uh, across the globe. We also have an existing oilseed crushing facility at Vinjara in Western Australia. Really the strategic reason for uh, looking at the opportunity to build additional crush capacity in Western Australia is the fact that there is a significant surplus in canola seed produced and that's currently exported to customers overseas. Uh, by our estimates, about 75% of that oil seed exported ends up in renewable fuel manufactured in overseas markets. We're excited about the opportunity to uh, work with the demand side and the, the fuel companies to build that demand in Australia, uh, provide greater demand and opportunities for growers, uh, create investment and jobs for Australia as part of a future build as we work up the feasibility and the business case. Turning to your sustainability report now, which you released today as well, GrainCorp produced 130,000 tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions in the 2023 financial year. That was just in the handling of grain, not in the production of grain, the fertilising and that kind of thing that farmers do. Your emissions, that's about the same amount of energy it would, as it would take to power 87,000 homes for a year. So it's, it's not a small amount. Um, GrainCorp has committed to net zero by 2050, but it doesn't have a 2030 target at this stage. Meanwhile, there are some other grain handlers like CBH in Western Australia, which has set a 2030 target. Obviously, you know, farmers are on the front line of, of the effect of climate change. Do you feel an obligation to set more ambitious targets? One of the commitments we've made is to accelerate our commitment towards net zero over time. I think it's really important that you find the balance between setting long-term targets and making measurable progress. One of the things I'd point to is the 11% reduction in emissions per tonne through our processing area. I think the other thing to remember is GrainCorp is a large business. We're an important part of the overall agricultural supply chain. Uh, we think that sustainability is a real opportunity for the ag sector, both in reducing our emissions, our investment in companies like Future Feed, which potentially could reset the emissions from the uh, livestock sector, uh, but also the work that we're doing in the ag tech space uh, with companies like Loam, uh, where sequestering carbon on farm will provide both financial opportunities for growers, 
uh, and other forms of income, but also potentially improve productivity. And just finally, looking forward to the current harvest that's underway at the moment, you've received about 3 million tonnes of grain into your network. What are your expectations for this season? Uh, we haven't set a specific forecast uh, other than if you look at the ABARES uh, uh, forecast, it's about uh, 20.8 million tonnes. They'll obviously be updating in December as they get more confidence around what the actual crop is. Uh, so we, we typically expect uh, something in the order of 40% of that crop to come into our sites during harvest. It's pleasing to see prevailing weather conditions are providing ideal conditions for growers to harvest. We'll be wishing them all the best as that harvest uh, continues and certainly gets underway in Victoria in particular. That is Robert Spurway, who's the CEO of Grain Corp, speaking there to our reporter, Elsie Kennedy. You're listening to The Country Hour. Work along with you this afternoon, just before we head along to markets, let's talk about horticulture right now. An independent audit into horticulture research and development body, Hort Innovation, found the grower-funded body needs to improve transparency and better communicate how it invests its money. The research body received $588 million in revenue between 2018 and 2022, partly from grower levies across 37 crops and partly from the federal government. Hort Innovation Chief Executive Brett Fifield told Elsie Kennedy his organisation was working to address the issues raised in the report. The review released today has more than a dozen recommendations. We're mindful that the report and the, of the review does point to some areas of um, improvement and action, which we're very happy with, but we know there's more to be done. So in particular, one of the recommendations was that Hornet Innovation should publish an investment decision framework in order to let everybody know why you're investing in certain programs and projects. Why is it that you guys haven't published a decision framework so far? Hort Innovation receives feedback via 37 industry advisory committees. Each of those represents different parts of or different commodities within horticulture. We take that advice and develop annual investment plans with those groups. We're confident that we are investing in the right areas. We're flexible. We're listening to industry. The recommendation around a decision tree, we take that on board and we'll be publishing one of those early in the new year. The consultant that completed the review found that there was some feedback from stakeholders suggesting there wasn't a lot of clarity over investment activities. What are you doing to improve the communication and the conversations that you're having with the stakeholders? Part of the last 12 months has been around really focusing our communication with industry groups. So there's the 37 peak industry bodies and also their members and growers right across Australia. We've reallocated a significant amount of resource into a new team called Industry Services and Delivery, where we've doubled the number of team members servicing each of those industries. And so we're really focused on that engagement, opening up discussion early and actually building together in partnership with industry the priorities for Hort Innovation moving forward. One of the other recommendations was that you finalise the execution of memorandums of understanding that you've got with peak industry bodies and update the status of those MOUs on your website. Again, just letting everybody know where everything's up to. Why is it that you haven't done that so far? We have been doing that throughout the process. The, the reset and refresh of our advisory mechanism 
there's been a project that's been underway for 18 months. We expect next week that we will sign the final memorandum of understanding with the uh, one group that's outstanding and then we'll be updating and publishing uh, on our website all the final documents. What is that one group that still has the outstanding MOU? Nursery. So where, where is that up to at this stage? We've agreed terms and we think suspect it will be signed next week. The other thing that was recommended in the review was that you put some processes in place in order to make sure that the investment of levy payer and government funding is efficient and that there aren't any duplications. You had about $154 million come in in revenue in 2021-22. Of that, you put out about $103 million in research and development. What are you planning to do to increase the efficiency of that spending? Part of the priority Hort Innovation moving forward is having larger programs of work rather than individual projects. So you're seeing a significant shift in our investment portfolio from single industry investments to tackling challenges that stretch beyond one individual sector. So bringing together tree crop sectors to focus on particular biosecurity challenges that they all face. So providing industry organisations to bring funds together or bring those dollars that they pay into levies into larger programs of work, and that increases the efficiency and the stretch of our R&D muscle across the sector. That's Hort Innovation Chief Executive Brett Firefield there speaking to Elsie Kennedy. To market, to market, let's go to the sheep and lamb markets first today. Here's Leanne Dax at Wagga. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped to 33,000, while sheep numbers surged ahead to 20,600. Not all buyers made it to the sale. However, with the yarding lacking weight and quality, it meant plainer lambs and store types were well represented. Buyers were forced to step up for any lamb showing finish, with prices 10 to $20 dearer, isolated sales more. 18 to 24 kilo, 90 to 141, 20 to 26, 129 to 160, 26 to 30, 142 to 168, over 30 kilos, 157 to 179. Heavy old lambs, 118 to 171. Reno lambs, $60 to 109. Light lambs to kill, 30 to 87. Store lambs with weight and frame, $40 to 97. Lambs to feed on topped at 125. Hoggets were keenly sought, the better end, 60 to 97 dollars. A few pens of heavy mutton sold early this morning, selling at 33 dollars to 50. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. To Brendan Fletcher at Bansdale Cattle. G'day Warwick, numbers decreased to 350, that's 40 fewer than the sale of a fortnight ago with the usual buyers operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality improved in the limited selection of young cattle while cows remained well supplied. Trade cattle slipped up to 45 cents, grown lots eased 15, cows sold from firm to 5 cents cheaper with a little more restocker competition and processors loading cows for an estimated 275 to 347 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls lost 10 to 15 cents. Yearling trade steers 190 to 220, the heifer portion 140 to 202, grown steers and bullocks 180 to 200 cents, most light and medium weight cows 110 to 158, heavyweights 132 to 183, heavy bulls 182 to 222. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. All right, someone sent me a text that I love, absolutely love. We're talking about that theft at that fire station. I didn't know I could get voice texts. Listen to this. Warwick, it's gone, not goon. Gone, Malul. Cheers, mate. 
I love that text in so many ways. If you want to get your voice on the country out, there's another way you can do it. Send it to the text line, 0467-842-722. To the people of Gone Malul, you've already had one theft. You didn't need me to ruin your town name, so my apologies for that. But, Neb, we know you can do that. Thank you, anonymous texter, for sending that in. That's it for the Country Hour today. You can get rural news and information at abc.net.au slash rural. You can get uh, the Country Hour as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and also in the ABC Listen app. So please go and do that if you get the chance or want to listen back to anything. Otherwise, I'll catch you tomorrow. It's one o'clock.